if you wanted to turn to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, I'd like to read that text of Scripture to kind of set the pace for where we are. 1 Timothy 3 and in verse 15. It says, I'm uh, beginning verse 14 for context. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. And then Paul defines what that is, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The church, the local church, is the pillar and support of the truth. And then over in Psalm 11, verse 3, one of my favorite verses in all the world, actually, it says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to these texts and this topic this morning, um, the foundations definitely are being chipped at in a very, very real sense. And Father, being the church of the living God, we are the pillar and support of the truth, so we need to stand for those foundations and stake our claim and drive the stake in hardened truth. We pray, God, that your word would be lifted up this morning, that you, Jesus Christ, would be held in complete honor and in the place that you deserve before us, but that these truths would grip our hearts, Lord, and that they would challenge us anew to live even more so for you every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, there's a problem that's been growing in enormity over the past several decades that the people of God need to be aware of. I think many of you are. But we need to be aware of what's going on, and we need to know about these things and act upon these things. This problem is that there's a secular worldview that is diametrically opposed to the most fundamental and foundational teaching found in the Bible You see, secularism is, it is a compromise of biblical worldview. A divide is there. It's very, very clear. And we need to understand what that divide is. The problem is becoming more acute now as governments here and in Canada and Western culture are beginning now to legislate and make laws based on this secular worldview which puts all of those that live within a biblical worldview at odds with not only the secular worldview, but now the laws of the land. The last 50 years have seen nothing short of a revolution in sexual morality, which changes nothing when it comes to a biblical worldview, but everything when it comes to a secular worldview. You see, 
the changes in laws enacted so swiftly today almost take our breath away. Many historic, orthodox, biblical foundations are now considered against the law. And I've shared this with you before. This is not the first time I've talked about these things. The most recent situation has come to the fore in a bill that was just passed by the Canadian Parliament that amends the criminal code in Canada to ban conversion therapy. Well, the city of St. Paul banned it last year. So this is not new news. In over 20 uh, states in the United States, they've banned conversion therapy in over 100 municipalities. That's a therapy created by secular psychologists and practiced by secular psychologists and some Christian counselors who are what we would refer to as integrationists. They integrate psychology with biblical principles. Heavy on the psychology, light on the biblical principles. Okay? They would use this, this secular uh, form called conversion therapy, which really seeks to dissuade and quote-unquote convert a homosexual person to a heterosexual perspective and practice or to enforce a cisgender identity, to use contemporary terms. Cisgender means that gender with, uh, that you've been assigned at birth. Bible-believing counselors don't use this therapy and should not use this therapy because we understand that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, not any type of therapy, conversion included. But the problem is, in the bill, it's not so much the disallowance of the conversion therapy, which we would agree with, but it's the potential implications of this law when considering pastors and counselors with a biblical worldview when they teach the Bible's clear values on human sexuality and proclaim God's judgment on all immoral and sexual, uh, sexual deviant behavior. That's where the rub comes in. And the language around this bill is very broad and very easy to be shaped to make any type of preaching of biblical truth against the law. Today we are standing in solidarity with I'd love to say thousands, but I'll at least say hundreds of Bible-preaching pastors in North America, Canada, and the United States who are called today to preach on human sexuality. Worldview is everything, people. <laughs> it's just everything. The government does not have the understanding nor the capacity to make judgment calls in matters of faith and practice. That is not their responsibility, not their job. We read in 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. A natural man is a reference to someone who is not regenerate, born again, and doesn't hold to the teachings of the Bible. At one time, as Albert Moeller commented, religious belief, and specifically belief in the God of the Bible, provided the binding authority that held society together and provided a common morality. 
a common understanding of the world and a, and a common concept of what it means to be human. We call that a meta-narrative. It answers all the questions. Well, postmodernity has taken meta-narratives and thrown them in a trash bin. They say there is no meta-narrative. And that religious belief that I was talking about is a broad, historic, and orthodox Christianity held by many, even in different faith families, not just Bible thumpers from the the South or or quote-unquote evangelicals, but just basic common Protestant and Catholic theology holds to these truths. Severed from the Christian worldview that gave it birth, okay, the modern Western worldview cannot account for human dignity, cannot account for human rights or any objective system of right or wrong, and that is frightening people. We need to be very concerned about these things. I'm going to read that statement again. Severed from the Christian worldview that gave it birth, the modern Western worldview cannot account for human dignity, human rights, or any objective system of right or wrong. It's the crux of the matter. Now, contained in this preamble uh, to the bill C4, it's called C4. Interesting, isn't it? C4. (laughs) It's blowing, you know basic Christian theology out of the water. Bill C-4 in Canada, it stated this, quote, conversion therapy is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. Myths and stereotypes, okay? Including the myth that heterosexuality and cisgender identity and gender expression that conform to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over all other sexual orientation, gender identities, and gender expressions. Did you catch that? So the biblical worldview, which is contrary to contemporary views of gender and human sexuality, are referred to in the preamble to this bill, C4 in Canada, as myths and stereotypes. Therein is the problem. And the guys up in Canada are, 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 are livid. They're very, very concerned about this. But beloved, I was asked a question Friday, Thursday, in an interview on KKMS, do you think that this could happen in the United States? Are, are you kidding me? Have you not looked at the laws that have been passed in the last 20 years? Of course it can happen in the United States, and it is happening in the United States, and there are laws in the United States that make the things that Bible preachers who preach what is said in God's word, not their opinions, but just preach what is in God's word, are really going against the law of the land. They just haven't begun to prosecute Bible preachers yet. But the laws are in the books. As I said earlier, worldview is everything. And and this is a case where biblical worldview is up against a secular worldview. And, And what I would like to do today is present the supreme authority of God's word. And how we develop a biblical worldview. And then we're going to discover what the Bible says about identity and gender and 
the relationship between the genders, and we're going to talk about sexual behavior and what implications that has for believers. But for that, we need to open the Bible to the very beginning. Just go to Genesis chapter 1. I'd like to talk right now about authority, authority and worldview. Worldview is just a simple construct for all of life. It's, it's how you view life and how life operates. That's what worldview is. You see, God is authoritative for all faith and practice. God is authoritative. If you're taking notes, just write that. In the very first words we have, In Genesis 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In a biblical worldview, original and ultimate authority resides with God and God alone. God did not inherit his authority because there is no one to bequeath it to him. God didn't receive his authority, because there is no one to bestow it upon him. God's authority did not come by way of an election, because there is nobody to vote for him. And God did not seize his authority, because there is no one from whom to steal it. God did not earn his authority. It was already his, because he is ultimate. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which presupposes God's preexistence before everything that we can relate to as the universe, the space-time continuum. God's authority becomes obvious and unquestionable when we consider three facts. Number one, fact one, God created the heavens and the earth and all that exists therein. Genesis 1 and 2. Number two, God owns the earth and all that it contains, and those who dwell in it. Psalm 24.1 reads, The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. That's what the Bible says. And coupled with Genesis 1.1, it's quite clear. Third, in the end, God will consume it all. Just as he declared, quote, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, 2 Peter 3.10. That talks ultimacy. He created it, and he will uncreate it, and then recreate it. I left that part out, but that's not what we're talking about today. Possibly the most succinct statement about the supreme authority of God is contained in Jude 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Done. These are propositional statements of truth from the Bible. This is not Steve Linetti's marvelous way of saying things. This is God's word. And I do my best to stay out of the way of what he says. And I know I don't always succeed at that. I try to. Sometimes I get in the way, sharing my thoughts and so forth. 
but I trust the Spirit of God to erase all that stuff and just let you hear what God's Word says when I preach. That's my prayer. So amazing, God's Word. Now, the Bible is God's self-revelation, and it tells us what his expectations are. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it tells us that long ages ago, referring to the era of the Old Testament, that God spoke through the fathers and the prophets. Now, to speak reveals yourself. When you open your mouth, you reveal something about yourself. And then in the New Testament, it says God has spoken to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And he goes on in verse 2 to explain that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of his nature. Do you want a reason to read through the, the Gospels and study the life of Christ and look at Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the exact representation. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God whom we cannot see. Jesus Christ revealed him to us. Jesus Christ is referred to as the Word in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, hmm, logos. The Word is the expression of who you are. Jesus Christ is the expression the exact replication of God the Father that we can see and relate to. Marvelous truth. You see, contained in the Bible is God's self-revelation. God makes known to his creation, us, his expectation. He says things like, thus saith the word of the Lord. Or he gives commands like, like in the the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, thou shall not, thou shall, thou shall not. He tells us what he expects of us. God is authoritative, and the Bible is his word. It comes from him. Now, I want to talk about worldviews just a little bit, biblical versus secular. A biblical worldview begins with God in contrast to a secular worldview that disregards God and the Word because a secular worldview, well, secular itself just means having no religious or spiritual basis. Having no religious or spiritual basis. You can look it up in a dictionary. And, and the two are diametrically opposed, okay? You see, if you don't have a biblical worldview, you have no context to account for human dignity or human rights. How do you think everything took place over in Germany? They threw God out the window. They raised the Aryan man to the heights of God. And so that gave them warrant to do everything that they did to the Jews and others, the intellects and the homosexuals and everybody else, anybody they decided was disposable, they disposed of because they no longer were governed by a biblical worldview, but were governed by Nazism. You see, if you don't have a biblical world, you have no way, or a biblical worldview, you have no way to account for human dignity or human rights 
or any objective system of right or wrong. Why? Because might is right. The power of the state is right. These are difficult times. A biblical worldview is diametrically opposed to a secular worldview, and a secular worldview is diametrically opposed to a biblical worldview. Genesis 1.1, as I said, presupposes God's existence before creation of time-space continuum. If God created it all, he existed before everything was created, and we exist within what he created. That's not hard to understand, right? If he created everything, then we are God's creation, because on the sixth day he created man. We exist as part of his creation, thereby forming a creator created paradigm. I often, when I'm teaching this, I often do a big circle for God and a little circle for man. And what happens with a secular worldview is God is taken off. The big circle is completely taken off the whiteboard and all you have that little circle and it becomes the big circle. Man becomes the center of everything. Dangerous. Genesis 1.1 also presupposes God's sovereign reign over his creation, including all of humanity. And this is the rub with secular people who don't believe in anything spiritual or religious and because they don't want to have personal responsibility toward a sovereign ruler. But the first verse in Genesis places him in that position And so we are all, as his created beings, under his jurisdiction. Are you wondering why I titled this, If the Foundations Are Destroyed? (laughs) What can the righteous do? These are foundational truths, people. These are not like heavy theological constructs. These are simple, basic Bible truths. So, the authority of God is intact, and it is via the Word of God that we develop a biblical worldview. Secondly, the Bible addresses the idea of identity. Identity, wow. That's not contemporary at all. That's not practical. That's nothing that we can really, that's like, no. Very, very contemporary. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, still in Genesis chapter 1, we haven't even gotten out of it, Let us make man in our image. He created him, male and female, he created them. There's an identity crisis, isn't there, in the world today? Who are we? Never in the history of mankind, never in the history of mankind has the confusion of gender been as evident as it has become in our time. Never, people. This is new. There's always been aberrations. There's always been those outside the pale. Always. From Genesis on. But never has it been so widespread that there is a confusion of gender. The matter of gender identity is presently the most prevalent moral issue in Western culture. Gender identity issues are in Every educational institution, gender matters, are in every government institution, 
gender matters are in all major corporations and even in the military. Just talking stateside here now. But you can go across the world. Governments all over the world are dealing with gender issues. This is very, very important. So I want to say right out here, looking at the identity issue, first through a biblical worldview and then through a secular worldview, we will see where we are today in this area of human sexuality. We need this knowledge, people. You need this knowledge. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is a clear declaration of identity. The Bible presents an incontrovertible binary identification of humanity as God created them. First, we must understand the Imago Dei, which means the image of God. Mankind, all of humanity, has been created in the image of God. It says so in the Bible. It's a biblical worldview. Simply put, this explains humanity's unique relationship with God because in his relational life, his thinking and reasoning capabilities, he is like God because he can reason, having intellect and will and emotion. In a moral sense, he is like God because he knows good and he knows evil. And he was created good and sinless in his innocence. And further, he knows good from evil, as we see in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 2, 7 says, At the creation of man, God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and man became a living soul, a being. This reiterates a creator-created paradigm and relationship. And the first element of identity is that we are created in God's image. I love the intimacy of Genesis 2-7 where it says that God breathed into the man's nostrils the breath of life. How much more intimate can you be? Wow. We are not animals. We are humankind. We are unique. And with that comes responsibilities. Secondly, the Bible says that God created man, which is often used in Genesis and throughout the Bible. It's used in a general sense or generically to refer to male and female. So we're not just talking about maleness. We're talking about man, mankind. And God created in the beginning man in a binary fashion. Male and female created he them. There is no, listen, mark this down, there is no other identity in the Bible for human beings beyond male and female. I feel almost ridiculous saying this. I feel like, oh, they're going to think I'm being really pedantic and just talking down to them. But am I? Look around you, folks. Look around you everywhere. This is new news to a lot of people. And it's not pleasant news to a lot of people. This is not a moral judgment on my part. It is simply a categorical and irrefutable fact that the identity of human beings within a biblical worldview is binary and comprised solely of male and female. Just that statement alone. Come take me away. I mean, talk about cancel culture. 
But see, that's how far we've come, right? This is basic, foundational, orthodox, historical Bible truth. This is not like some weird thing. Within a secular worldview, I'm not going to the secular worldview, I just talked about the biblical worldview, but within a secular worldview, especially our modern worldview, there is an allowance for between 52 to 72 different gender identities. Facebook alone listed at least 52 in 2014. I know there's many more now. 52. Let me give you just a, a sampling of them. Ah, gender. Ah, meaning canceling out gender. So, ah, gender. We have androgynous, which is neither one or the other. Cisgender, which is in accordance with the birth sex. Gender fluid. Gender nonconforming. Gender questioning, which is gender dysphoria, uh, where there's an incongruence between one's sex assigned at birth and one's gender identity. That's gender questioning. Gender queer, um, which just simply means um, not in alignment with heterosexual or homosexual norms. Queer has taken on a whole new uh, meaning in my day long time ago after the earth just hardened over. <laughs> queer was just something you'd say that was strange or weird. Um, now it's a, it's a badge of honor now to be queer because you are incongruent with and not in alignment with heterosexual things and normal things, okay? That's queer. Non-binary. Whoa, that's kind of like a axe right to the root. Non-binary. That's a gender. Pangender. Transsexual. Transsexual person. Transsexual woman. Two-spirit. Okay, these are all gender identities. And there are many more. Interestingly, many of the designations that are explained are explained in contrast with a person's assigned sex. A person's assigned sex, which is defined as, quote, a label that you're given at birth based on medical factors, including your hormones, chromosomes, and genitals. Can I just lapse for a second here? So many people today talk about stick to the science, stick to the science, stick to the science. Well, hormones, chromosomes, physical traits like genitals are all part of science-related things, are they not? I mean, I know I'm talking to the, the choir here, but we have strayed far, folks. We're in la-la land. We are not in Kansas anymore. And that is because a secular worldview has taken over. Our Judeo-Christian worldview is but a faint memory, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, and it's getting fainter by the day. You see, these identities that I mentioned up above are all within a secular worldview because those that hold such a view are described as those who are ones without hope and without God in the world, according to Ephesians chapter 2.12. Those who hold to a secular worldview, are they don't want anything spiritual or religious in their worldview. They have stepped outside of that. Okay. I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. I'm just stating a fact. The testimony of generations and history 
this binary paradigm that I've been talking about, which is biblical, has been universally recognized to identify people in all cultures and societies for millennia. For millennia. There have always been anomalies to the norm, but there is abundant evidence for the norm throughout history, Western and Eastern or Oriental, which covers it. All cultures, societies, and so forth, have identified humanity as male and female. And so we see the authority of God as a creator leads to a biblical worldview because a biblical worldview is based in the Bible, which is God's word, and God's divinely sourced self-revelation, and, and that a secular worldview is opposed to a biblical world because it has no religious or spiritual basis. And within the biblical worldview, identity is binary, comprised of male and female. Now, these are foundational truths, and until very recent times, they've been the foundational value that held society and people together. The meta-narrative that I talked about. For a third point on biblical sexuality, I'd like to look at relationships. Relationships. In Genesis 2-7, it says, For this reason man will leave father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Still in Genesis. The binary designation of human biology has implications for human relationship. If humanity is comprised of male and female persons, and it is, then there are implications for the interaction between the sexes, if I can use such a term. <laughs> and I will. And the Bible is very clear about these interactions as we might expect it to be. The biblical definition of marriage is contained in Genesis 2.24. I think I, I quoted Genesis 2.7. It should be 2.24, I'm sorry. In Genesis 2.24, it says, A man will leave his, that's a masculine pronoun, his father and mother, and his mother, and be joined to his wife, which is a feminine noun, and they shall become one flesh. I mean, you've got to throw the laws of language out and grammar out in order to go with the flow today. This is the definition of a heterosexual monogamous relationship between one man and one woman for life. The nouns and pronouns in the Hebrew are distinctly masculine and feminine. It's how we understand what is being said in grammar. I went to seminary for that. <laughs> These terms are universal, and God's design for marriage is universal. They're called creative mandates, if you will. Cultures throughout the world practice some form of marriage on the order of divinely described union between one man and one woman in a monogamous lifelong union. This is not just in Christianity. Cultures and societies all through the world operate on a binary system of understanding biology and on a biblical understanding of marriage between one man and one woman. Of course, there are 
are deviations and practices in some cultures. And even within the history of Bible of God's people, there's polygamy. But that was not the norm. And Jesus corrected it back in, in Matthew when he talks about uh, marriage. He, he addresses marriage. He, he, he goes back to Genesis 1 and 2 and he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning created them male and female and goes on to explain it? So Jesus passes over the aberrations of some of the patriarchs practicing polygamy and goes back to the creative mandate, which is one man, one woman in a monogamous relationship for life. The norm set in creation mandate operates in an overwhelming number of cultures in the world and reflects the biblical institution of marriage without ever knowing the Bible. Even the Taliabo, who Mary and I worked with for almost 20 years, who had no previous exposure to the Bible, practiced a marriage of one man and one woman in a monogamous relationship for life. And they had severe punishment for the deviation from that model. <laughs> there were financial fines. There was whipping women tied to a post with a, a uh, oh gosh, a, a stingray tail, okay? I mean, you got caught in adultery or fornication, man. It was over in that culture. That's without the Bible. <laughs> so I'm just making a point here. And adultery is a deviation from God's design for marriage. God originated marriage. He set the parameters for marriage, and he identified deviation from marriage as uh, marriage covenant as adultery. And he protected this divinely revealed institution in the Decalogue with the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. In the New Testament, Jesus, as I mentioned, reiterated God's design for marriage and um, by quoting uh, Genesis. His words are found in Matthew 19, 4 and 5, if you want to jot that down. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, the binary, and said, for this reason man, masculine, will leave his father and mother and join, be joined to his wife, feminine noun, and the two will become one flesh. And he added protection of that institution when he said in verse 19 of that same chapter, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery, which is dilarang. It's not allowed. So he's reiterating the seventh commandment. Now, fourthly, I want to talk about sexual relationships, Okay. And you don't have to tell the kids to leave. I'm not going to say anything that they shouldn't be hearing. The body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. Flee immorality. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, this argument that Paul brings up about immorality and the body, it's really interesting if you go in and you study the context because he's talking about the resurrection of our bodies. Our physical bodies are really kind of unique. And the reason I know that is because Jesus Christ right now is in a physical body, okay, that has been glorified, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And when he returns, we're told in Acts chapter 1, when he returns, 
he will return in the same way that he left, we will recognize him. What does that say about the resurrection of the saints? We will have bodies. So it's very important. But the body is not for immorality. It's for the Lord. And and flee immorality. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Sexual intimacy is the gift of God to be enjoyed in marriage. Well, why marriage? What's the big deal about marriage? Isn't that just an outdated form that we have in our culture? And isn't it just a slip of paper that you sign? What's the big deal about it? We live together and we're monogamous and I'm, you know. Well, number one, marriage is for procreation, Genesis 1.28. Number two, marriage is for pleasure, Hebrews 13.4. The marriage bed is undefiled. And in Psalm 5 and Song of Solomon, it extols the pleasures of an intimate sexual relationship with your wife in the confines of marriage. So procreation and pleasure. It's also for provision. Ephesians 5 says that the husband provides for the wife and family. She's precious in his sight, and he takes care of her, and he provides for her. So you've got procreation and pleasure and provision. Fourthly, it's, it's for partnership, and I love this one. Genesis 2 talks about the woman being a helpmeet, a companion. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, it talks about being fellow heirs of the grace of life or the gift of life. And I'll tell you, after 48 years with Mary, we're buddies. <laughs> we're companions. We finish each other's sentences. We shouldn't, but we do. And we think alike. And we act alike. And, you know, we don't have everything all together, even after 48 years. We still have discussions. <laughs> <laughs> but she's my partner. And I'm her partner. She's my companion. I I love that about the marriage covenant. Then we have marriage is a picture, Ephesians chapter 5. It's a picture of Christ in the church. It's one of the most effective evangelistic tools that we have, our marriages, because it's a picture of Christ in the church. And and then sixthly, it's, it's, it's for purity, because being married keeps from committing fornication. And it should keep from adultery. It satiates those sexual urges that we have been created with for procreation to keep the, the, the human race going. 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 talks about that purity. So sexual intimacy is limited or it is to be within the marriage covenant relationship. All else outside of that is considered immorality. Immorality. Sexual intimacy outside of marriage, the marriage covenant, is sin. The Old Testament spells strong consequences for sex outside marriage. Stoning, basically. And before marriage. Before marriage, it's called fornication if you're not married. Young people, listen to me. Sexual intimacy outside of a marriage relationship is called fornication. That means all sexual intimacy, not just intercourse. You can't just be a, what would you call it, a, um, a what? No, I'm going to say it. If I can remember it, I'll say it. I'll take my wife's advice. But what, what that's talking about is 
any type of sexual involvement before marriage is immorality according to the Bible in a biblical worldview. So don't be thinking you can do up to this point. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's all reserved for marriage. And maybe that's why people should get married a little bit younger. You know? Because those hormones are burning. It's better to be married than burn, it says in the scripture. Does the scripture understand humanity and human sexuality? Yes, clearly. Trial marriages, viewing marriage as a worn out tradition and restrictive norm are all views held and promoted by a secular worldview, not a biblical worldview. God's word is the standard, not individual feelings. Oh, Because we are a therapeutic society, And we operate basically on human emotion rather than objective truths anymore. You have to just clarify this. God's word is a standard, not individual feelings. Many today claim that if two individuals love one another, that seals the deal. But I'm here to tell you, a secular worldview that sees human emotion and affection as the standard by which to gauge relationship and sexual intimacy is wrong, according to the Bible. And that is a judgment call, but according to the Bible, not according to my personal opinion. You see, the Bible disdains that kind of a perspective that allows for sex and sexual intimacy outside of marriage. And it calls all such behavior, all such behavior, immorality. And that's another word for sin. Now, LGBTQ plus is in direct opposition to biblical sexuality. It just is, patently. This is where the fault line has been drawn between secular and biblical worldviews. There's a concerted effort, listen to me, there's a concerted effort by those with a secular worldview to oppose at every level the most basic and fundamental tenets of historical orthodox biblical teaching on human sexuality. It is not just a couple of people that have joined a group. There is a concerted effort. There is an organized effort, if you will. Okay, What I've been saying today is not a personal opinion, but rather the straightforward reading an explanation of biblical teaching held as normal faith and practice for millennia for Jews and then for Christians. The LGBTQ plus agenda is in diametric opposition to everything that I've identified from the Bible today. Let me share a few quotes to amplify and validate that statement, okay? One gay or homosexual literary figure has said this, quote, If the past 50 years have taught us anything, talking to the community, it is that we can indeed bend the arc of the moral universe toward justice from their perspective, okay? This movement has changed the lives of LGBTQ community, but it has also changed the way the entire nation thinks and feels about homosexuality and about the entire spectrum of gender identity and sexual orientation. Very, very articulate and very clearly stated. 
from a secular perspective, right? A Washington Post article in 2019 stated this, quote, these activists, meaning gay activists, didn't just want to create alternative communities for queer people. They aimed to remake society around the novel social arrangements they cherished. Just, I want to read that again. They aimed to remake society around the moral, or excuse me, the novel social arrangements they cherished. Addressing human need and desire through broad community structures rather than monogamous nuclear family. Do you see what they're against? Monogamous nuclear families. Followed by this comment is this one. Quote, the vision of the LGBTQ movement centered on a comprehensive, a comprehensive reorientation of the social norms that had governed humanity since Adam and Eve. It's clear. The lines are drawn really clear. You've got to be really dense not to see the difference between the worldviews. You see, the post writer went on to say, quote, the LGBTQ community, including the push for marriage equality, has also helped upend repressive attitudes about sex. Establishing non-marital sex and sexual behavior once thought perverse as largely uncontroversial. That's their goal. Now, let me bring it home to us right where we stand today. This is why almost every movie and almost every television program, even cartoons, now have a same-sex couple married or not in them. Everything you see, Marvel, everything, down to kids' cartoons, have same-sex promoted. Because they want to normalize it, and as it says, establishing non-marital sex and sexual behavior once thought perverse as largely uncontroversial. What's the big deal? What? You're bigoted. You're hateful. You're despising people. No, no, I'm not. I love them. Every single one of them. There isn't an ounce of animosity in my heart towards anyone who is caught up in the these sins, which the Bible says they are sins, at all. But that's what I'll be accused of if I share my views. A biblical worldview from Genesis 1 onward declares the fact that God created human beings as male and female, both made in his image, and made for the conjugal, conjugal, excuse me, conjugal relationship of marriage and, and procreation, which is the very first divine command of humankind. Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply, going to the relationship between the sexes. Marriage and the conjugal union of a man and a woman is revealed as God's creative purpose from the very beginning. But it's in the covenant of marriage. So what do we do? What do we do with this, everything that I've been talking about? How do we bring it home? Well, I've got four things I want to talk to you about for these things, Okay what to do. Number one, submit yourself to God as your supreme authority. If you have not done that, you need to bring yourself back in order with the creative order of God as creator and you as a creature. The creator-creature paradigm. Submit yourself to God. Now, that does not mean you instantaneously become like a monk. 
or like a theologian, or like a seminary graduate. It just means that you're saying to God, God, you are my creator. I want to do what you want me to do. Start working on me. I give you myself. I'm, I'm, I'm yielding myself to you, okay? Number one. Number two, know what the Bible teaches and follow it, adhere to it. Know what the Bible teaches. Emotional or political arguments won't cut it because this is a spiritual battle that we're in, folks. Okay? When the foundations for human society so clearly laid out in the Bible are opposed, things have moved from an emotional and political level to a spiritual one. The Bible unapologetically says, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Amen to that. You can trust the Bible. The Bible is God's inerrant word. By trusting the Bible, you are trusting God. By doing what the Bible says, you are in line with God's will. And as I mentioned before, those who are without God and without hope in the world cannot understand and don't even have the capacity to enter into the realm of spiritual matters. You're not going to get any satisfaction there. You just won't. You will find no common ground there, except that you're human. (laughs) Ah, but that brings you back to Genesis chapter 1, and that's where the divide takes off, because they don't want to go to the Bible. So study God's word because he said it, not because you feel strongly about an opinion that you have. And it's not a matter of one's opinion against another. Don't get caught in that trap. Just let God's word the propositional truths that are contained in God's word, stand on their own. You are outside of that, you, you, and he is outside of our thinking. Don't be, be brought into the temptation to say, well, that's your opinion, or that's your interpretation. Ask them, well, how do you interpret in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? <laughs> and let them define that. How do you deal with the fact that God said he created man in his image, Male and female created he them. How do you interpret that? Bring them to the word of God and say, hey, listen, don't shoot the messenger here. I'm just saying what the Bible says. I personally believe that, but that's what I'm bringing to you is what the Bible says, not my, not my personal thinking or, or even my quote-unquote religion or what my church teaches. I'm just right with what the Bible says. That's all. It's important that you can defray an argument like that and diffuse things because it gets very, very heated real quickly when you talk about that. It's not a matter of one opinion against another, but rather what is true over what is false. Okay, thirdly, boldly and courageously obey Christ's command to tell others. You see, one of the freeing things regarding these weighty matters that we've been talking about is that even though we don't have the prerogative not to tell others. We are not free not to tell others what the Bible says. We are under orders, if you will. (laughs) We all are, as Christians, under orders. We have to tell others what God's word says. But here it is. They don't have, uh, they do have the right to reject it. Now that's a huge, a huge point that you should mark in your mind. We don't coerce people We don't try to manipulate people. We just tell them what God's word says, and then they deal with God and his word, not me, not any way that I can 
bring them about. That's why I wouldn't believe in conversion therapy. We don't coerce people. They have every right in the world to reject what we're saying. And we can still act in love towards them. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Even though they reject what we're saying, it's okay. That's their prerogative, at least now. But you might want to remind them that in the end, on judgment day, no rejection will be allowed. There will be a consequence that rejection... That's what motivates us, right? That's what motivates us. They are under the wrath of God. It's hanging over them. Here and now, we don't chorus. We, we do warn. We do implore. We plead with people to listen to what God has said. And we do so as an act of obedience to his clear command to preach the gospel to all nations even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we also do it as an act of love towards them because you want them to be free from what they're in bondage to. You want them to be free to be who God created them to be. That's an act of love. If you see somebody heading on a bridge that you know is not finished yet, wouldn't you drive your car in front of their car to stop them from going off that bridge? And say, whoa, whoa, the sign is gone. This bridge isn't completed yet. How about people going into a Christless eternity? How much more important is this for us to tell them? Our obedience is not a burden to us, but it's a joyful response to God's wonderful grace in saving us and keeping us. Fourthly and finally, huh? Be assured of God's presence and blessing on that obedience. Because God's obedience, or because obedience to God's word in a world that John tells us lies in the power of the evil one, we will face not only opposition, but quite possibly outright persecution. For the last few years, I've been preparing our church for persecution. I've talked about it. I've stated it. I've said it's coming. Things are getting darker. Look out. Here we go. Hang on. (laughs) This nation is under God's judgment, and rightly so. Read chapter 1 of Romans. We're under the judgment of God. And believe me, the righteous suffer with the unrighteous in the judgment of God. Take heart, though, because Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The secular worldview that is pushing back strongly against what the Bible teaches is not some new phenomenon, although it might seem so in a country like ours that has been founded upon and enjoyed the fruit of Judeo-Christian values for a couple hundred years now. We've had a good run. It's been good. I don't know. Maybe God will reclaim it. I don't know. It doesn't seem like it. Let me leave you with this, these two vital verses as we move forward in unashamed, courageous faith. Two verses, okay? The first one, you can mark these down. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. This is an important one to just kind of shake us alive to realize that nothing strange is happening to us. And don't whine so loud. (laughs) Okay. Quote, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange or some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, who incidentally was perfect and sinless, and they crucified him. 
To the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. So don't think of the pushback that you receive, uh, the struggles that you have, the fact that you get fired from your job. (laughs) Okay? Don't think of that as some strange thing. It's not. And in Matthew 28, 20, this is a promise and this is hope and this is encouragement and comfort. Observe all that I commanded you, Jesus said, and lo, I am with you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So may God bless the preaching of his word today. Amen.